Romans chapter 8. And let's pray together. Lord, speak to us tonight, we ask, out of your word, Lord, what it is you want us to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, Bill was here and shared chapter, verse 17 of chapter 8. And uh, he did a pretty good job. Um, but, no, he did a fantastic job. He really did. Heard a lot of good comments. And, and uh, I'll tell you, Brother Bill is somebody you definitely look up to. Um, we are children of God. The word techna there is little children of God. Then we're heirs of God. Then heirs, heirs of God. So he's making it clear here. And, and this verse 17, you might make a note, is a very pivotal verse in the book of Romans. Because thus far he's concluding then we can see that we're no longer under the law. Salvation is not going to come by our works of righteousness, which we can do. It's not going to happen. So we're no longer in the courtroom of Moses, and we are before the judge, and we need to come in a judicial sense to be justified by God. We come as children to the Father. We're given salvation as a gift, not by works, but as a gift of God. But then notice, as we've been talking about justification, we clearly see the transition, as we've been talking about it for the last few weeks, now into sanctification. Justification, we do not work for it. It's given to us as a gift. We don't earn it. Sanctification is something that also the Spirit of God does. Now, the Spirit of God completely does the work of justification. The work of sanctification will one day be completely done when we're out of these bodies and present with the Lord. However, now, your response and your walk with God definitely decides your eternal status of sanctification. We're all going to be equally in heaven. We're all going to be equal in righteousness. We'll have the same exact righteousness as Jesus Christ. However, there is clearly various levels of glorification in heaven with Christ. And this is why he says we're little children, or techna. He doesn't use oio, which is... Um, adult children here. He's clearly using the word tech now, little tiny children, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. So we are going to be equal to Jesus Christ in righteousness. And actually we are right now. We just can't see it. Um, little children, it says in 1 John, I don't know what we're going to be like, but I know when we see him, we'll be just like him. Equal in righteousness. 1 John also says, um, as he is presently, so are we in this world. Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So we are in Christ and Christ is in us, as Ephesians 1 talks about, which is a beautiful mystery. And we're equal to Christ in righteousness. Our salvation is absolutely a certain thing by the grace of God, by his doing. But notice here, he does say, if, Indeed, we suffer with him 
that we may be also glorified together. Now notice in verse 18, for I consider, it's the word to calculate out in your mind, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed, notice how, in us. And hold your finger there and turn over to 2 Corinthians 4, and we're going to come back to that later, so put a little marker there. I want to make one point out of it now, and I'm going to come back and make another point out of it later. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Look at verse 17. For our light affliction, which is but a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal. Notice this in the last three words of verse 17 of 2 Corinthians 4. Weight of glory. The sufferings that we're going through is going to work in for us a far greater weight of glory. Now, hold your finger there in Second Corinthians. I want to talk a minute. Now, the Bible clearly talks about various rewards. As a matter of fact, he goes on to say in chapter 5 of Second Corinthians that we're going to be judged before God according to what we've done in the body in verse 10, whether good or bad. We're going to be judged before God. First uh, Corinthians 3 clearly says there's going to be variance and rewards according to what we've been building upon. Whether gold and silver and precious metals or hay, wood and stubble, the fire will reveal it. The foundation is going to stand, Jesus Christ, although you may suffer the loss of all things. Now, what reward are we going to have in heaven? Now, down here on earth, reward means you get a bigger house or a nicer car or better clothes or um, better location. And you think about it, none of those things can happen in heaven. Now, the Lord tries to give us imagery to help us because of our earthly, finite perspective. So he says, heaven's going to have streets of gold. Now, does it really matter what the streets are made out of? Do you really care? <laughs> I don't really think so. I think what he's saying here is proportionally, the stuff that you walk on, trample underfoot on, is what, you know, the asphalt of earth is the best materials you can think of, gold. That, that's what you have in heaven. The asphalt in heaven is our gold down here. And Jesus says, I go away to prepare a mansion for you. Wow, I'm going to get an incredible house. I mean, think about it. What part of a house are you going to need? The bathroom? Don't think so. A kitchen? We're going to be eating with the Lord. A bedroom? We're not going to be sleeping there. A living room? Why? I mean, who would rather walk outside with a cup of tea or lemonade than sit inside? There, there's really no aspect of a house, as we know it, that we would really use. What is the house we know for sure? Our bodies. Our bodies is the temple of the Holy Spirit. I definitely think there's a heaven to come. I think it's going to be 100 million percent better than we ever could fathom. Paul, remember... In 2 Corinthians 11 says, and then in, verse, in chapter 12, he says, I went into heaven. And there's a man I know that went into heaven there, 2 Corinthians 12. And he said, if I tried to tell you about those things, it would be unlawful. I, I can't do it. Human words would so degrade heaven if I tried to put it in human words. It, it would be absolutely sinful. I can't do it. But I saw it. I experienced it. And let me tell you, it's awesome, but I can't tell you about it. 
Because it's just, there's not human words to put it in. And I think when we get to heaven, that's the way it's going to be. It's going to be so breathtaking. It's going to be so incredible that human vocabulary couldn't even begin talking about the asphalt. And if we were to try to describe it, we would just say, well, take the best we have here and make it the asphalt there, and that's about as good as good as we can come. The Lord's going to be the light in the place. We see various scenes of, of the walls being like prisms where the various multi- um, rainbow colors are shooting through the various crystal walls and so forth. And, and I, I just can't imagine exactly what it's going to be like. But I do think that the reward we have is our body. And I think we're going to have various kinds of bodies. If you were to tell my five-year-old son, I'm going to do something special for you. Oh, man. I'm going to get a, go to McDonald's and get a Happy Meal, you know? And it's like, that's right. That's where we're going. It's like, oh, man, I go tell my neighbors. I'm going to McDonald's. I'm going to get a Happy Meal, Ooh, you know? And I'm going to play in the balls a while. Yeah, you know, this is, he's all stoked. Now, if I were to go to my wife and say, honey, I'm going to do something special for you. I'm going to take you to McDonald's and get you a Happy Meal. And that'll be playing the balls. I better duck, you know. <laughs> it's not going to be special. But if I said, hey, I got a couple of tickets to Hawaii. We're going to spend a week together, just me and you. She's, wow, man, that's, I never thought I'd go to Hawaii. Well, just a sermon. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have any tickets for Hawaii. <laughs> Never been there. I don't know if I'll be getting there in the near future, but someday maybe. Wow, you know, I'm going to go to, it's going to be awesome. So there's going to be people up in heaven. Some, I think, their bodies can obtain a certain amount of glory. They're sucking it in around them. Wow. But their level of experience of the glory that they're observing in heaven is some like little kids going to McDonald's and playing in the you know playing in the balls and eating the Happy Meal and having their little plastic toy and and they're happy. You go up to heaven and say, "Is this heaven?" Oh, this is heaven, you know. <laughs> they're just having a great time in heaven. But I think there's others that are looking on, going. I'm glad I suffered with Christ on earth. Wow, what I'm experiencing now. I mean, I'm happy for all those guys with their Happy Meals up here. But man, what I'm sucking in is a far weightier glory. And I think that the bodies we will inherit will be for eternity. That's it. There's not going to be another change. There's not going to be a maturity factor of being able to grow in the glory of God. And this is why he uses the word to be revealed. The word there um, is the word apocalypse. It's the same word revelation, the book of Revelation. That revelation is going to happen in us. And so if you're willing to suffer with him now, then you will be glorified together 
with him to the degree that you've suffered with him now and living for him now. So Paul says, I, don't, I can't consider the sufferings of this present time. Now, look over there, if you would, at 1 Corinthians, where we're at, 2 Corinthians, excuse me, where we're at in verse 4, or chapter 4. Notice there that it seems that Paul always ties sufferings and the glory of our new bodies always together. And, and notice this in chapter 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels referring to our body. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. That the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in where? Our body. Now notice the parallel here. That as I am denying myself even on this earth, as I am living out the sufferings of Christ on this earth, being fellow sharers of his sufferings, as Paul says there, remember in Philippians 3.10, that I might know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, that I might be made conformable to the image of his death. Philippians 3.10. He's saying, now to the degree that I'm caring about the body of the dying of the Lord Jesus in me, what's happening? The life of Jesus is also manifest in my body. How? To the same degree death is taking place now, life is being taken place now. And I say to you, to the degree suffering is taking place, the glory will be revealed. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. But since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe, and therefore I spoke, we also believe, and therefore we speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, when you see the word therefore, what do you say? What's the therefore, therefore? And it's always what's preceding it, right? So understanding the sufferings of Christ, the glory we have is not... The glory is what? The glory is in our body. What's the glory in our body? The power of God. What's the glory of, in our body? Our dying to ourselves that others could have life through us, exactly as Christ. Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. Verse 17 again. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far ex more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So his mind is on the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. As he's denying himself to live for the Lord, What's happening? He's saying, I know that my reward is sure in heaven. Paul says that in 2 Timothy 1.12. For I know whom I believed in, and I am persuaded he's able to keep that which I've given unto him until that day. I'm confident that whatever I'm losing out on this earth is really just being stored up in heaven for me. I'm not losing out on anything. And so whatever appears that I'm losing here is really, it's not lost. It's just deposited in my heavenly bank account. And then he says in verse 5, or chapter 5, verse 1, For we know. Do you know? We are supposed to know. Paul says we as believers all know 
that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as the guarantee, the down payment, the certainty that it is going to happen. Therefore, we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Verse 8, we are confident, yes, well, please, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, there it is again, verse 9, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad, knowing therefore the terror, the awesomeness of God, of the Lord of that day, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I trust are also well known to your conscience. Verse 12, we would not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to glory in our behalf that you may have something to answer those who glory in appearance and not in heart. For if we are besides ourselves, if we're going nuts, it seems like, serving God, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ constrains us because we judge thus that if one died for all, what? Then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Very clearly. Therefore, verse 16, from now on we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation, which is another sermon. What does he say? He says, we no longer judge according to the flesh. We judge according to what we can't see. That person who's denying themselves, living for Christ, what can we say for them? Their reward in heaven is incredible. We look at that person who has given themselves to the word, given themselves to prayer, given themselves to live for Christ and to serve Christ with their all. We all know. They're losing their life in this world, but boy, is it going to pay off in the life to come. It's sort of like the kid in school who's going to all the parties and having the great time, supposedly. And then you got the guy in the library studying away. He's studying day after day, and oh, come on, let's go throw the frisbee around. Oh, come on, lighten up, you know. I, you've read that chapter already. I know, i got to read it again, though. Come on, you don't have to write all those notes. Come on, let's go to the beach. Everybody's going to the beach. You know, let's go. No, no, I think I'm going to stay here and study. And then the week of finals, what's happening? They're sweating. Oh, man, all-nighters, you know. Popping no-dos and, you know, and drinking all kinds of caffeine. And, you know, oh, man, I was up till 5 in the morning, man. And then the day of the finals, oh, man, are you ready? I don't know if I'm ready. Are you ready? I don't know, you know. The guy who's just been studying away, being consistent. It's not a stressful week. He's not staying up till four in the morning. He's been studying, plugging around, and that week is not a stressed out week. 
And when the day of the final comes, it's not, oh man, I hope I did okay. It's sort of just, well, I did the best I could. I plugged away, studied the best I could. I was diligent as I could be. Not perfect, but I've done, I've done my best. So whatever happens, happens. And you have those mentality of people that are saying, I don't have to live that sacrificial life suffering for Christ. I can just somehow get there and I'll just sort of figure it out when I get there how it all works out. But it's not going to happen that way. You're not going to be able to pull an all-nighter for Christ to get a, a better reward in heaven. Oh, whoa! Signs of the time. The Lord's going to come back any day. You know, I've got a week to go for it, you know, and go pass out a million tracks before the end of this week. Or It's not going to happen that way. Remember over in Matthew chapter 20. Turn there if you would. In Matthew chapter 20. There in verse 20. The mother of Zebedee the sons came to him with her sons kneeling down and asking something from him. So here comes James John kneeling down, the mother of Zebedee there. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one at your right hand and the other on your left in your kingdom. What is she asking? Let them have great spiritual rewards, better than anybody else. Let them have the highest status in your kingdom that's coming than anybody else. Isn't that what she's asking? I want them to have the highest possible reward. I want them to have the highest possible position. I want them to be the most blessed people in your kingdom they can possibly be. Jesus doesn't say, forget it. He says this in verse 22. Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you ask. Okay? You don't understand. Then he goes on to say, Are you able to drink of the cup that I am about to drink? Which is what? His persecution, his death, his sufferings. To be baptized with the same baptism that I am baptized with. Referring again to his death, his sufferings. And they said to him, We are able. And he said to them, You will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left are not mine to give, but it is for those for whom is prepared by my Father. So he's saying this. I'm not saying no. I'm saying if you want it, you're going to have to drink the same cup. You're going to have to go through the same baptism. For that to even be a possibility, you're going to have to drink the same cup, go through the same baptism. Are you willing? I am willing. Okay, then that's a possibility. I can't say yes. It's, it's in my Father's hand who gets those positions of authority. But I know that you're not going to get it outside of that. Does that make sense? Now, we look at the pattern of Paul's life, which the Bible clearly says in Philippians that we're to walk after the same pattern that Paul lived. And he said in 2 Corinthians 3, to live godly in this life is to be persecuted. He says to his son, son Timothy, don't be ashamed of my chains. I wish you were here with me. <laughs> Why? Because he wants to see him in prison? No, because he knows that if he's burning it as a believer like he's supposed to be and not ashamed of the testimony of Christ like he is presently, 
that he also would be in prison for Christ. And we find out later on that Timothy indeed does get in prison for Christ. I think we have, because we're in America, and as Americans, we've been so prideful that we think we don't need the rest of the world, I don't care about the rest of the world. I've got my life so plushed out here, it doesn't really matter. But if you look through the centuries, Christians have suffered greatly for their faith. And I think out of mercy, America came to be. The pilgrims, unlike what you learned in your secular history books, were awesome people. They weren't your puritanical people trying to find everybody who's a witch and burn them at the stake. That's not what went on. There was a short period of time where the governor uh, Worthrop went through that. Worthrop did that. He wrote in his own diary that he wished he hadn't have done that. But the people that he did burn probably were demon-possessed people. And you can read about it, some of the weird things that were going on. There were definitely demonic, supernatural things going on. However, they were persecuted Christians from all over Europe. They were all had lost everything because of their faith in Christ. Many of them, their, grand, their dad and their grandfathers and their great-grandfathers, had been burned at the stake and severely persecuted in their countries because of their faith. And they wanted to go to a country where they could worship God without distraction, without persecution. And so really, we have received of the blessings. But it's not so anymore. You go to your school and you stand up for your faith, you will be persecuted. You go to your job and you stand up for your faith, you will be persecuted. I had a gal just today talk to me. Her husband has a county job. And as his county job, he has to go through 16 hours of toleration seminars. It's basically a couple homosexuals. They go in there and they tell you about their lifestyle and tell you how they're persecuted and you need to accept it. And it's completely normal. And they're going to convince you within 16 hours that it's, that it's completely normal. It was a discovery. They didn't even want it. They didn't desire it. It just was their natural bent of life. And, and you need to accept it. That's exactly what they're doing. If you stand up in that seminar and say, this is a bunch of doo-doo, I'm not going to swallow it. I'm willing to be a county employee, but I'm not going to sit around and listen to a bunch of garbage. This isn't reality. Nobody's born a homosexual. He'll probably lose his job. It's being shoved in our faith. I had a gal come to me last year, and Friday they came home and they said, what social study class do you want to be in? And uh, they had a list of them. And if you didn't mark it and turn in the money, they, ob- they automatically put you in. The son forgot to take it back to school. They automatically put him in a class taught by two homosexual men on homosexuality. That was a social studies class. Couldn't get out of it. If he did get out of it, he would lose that credit and he'd have to make it up. And they don't have summer school social studies classes. And it's basically impossible for him to make it up. It's right here in Sweetwater District. Had another gal who's worked for... 20, 30 years now um, as a cook in the Sweetwater District. She came up to me just a few months ago at the end of the school year. They had a mandatory meeting. Every janitor, every gardener, every cook, the principal, everybody had to be there. They sent it out for weeks in advance. If you're sick, you you better hope you're in the hospital. You better be here. Nobody misses this meeting. And usually the meetings last about an hour and a half. This one lasted almost three hours. 
it was two lesbians employed by Sacramento. They go around and they do, they do series, basically trying to convince you that, you know, they're the new Aussie and Harriet. It's just, there's no Aussie. <laughs> and that's what they did. They let you know at the front of the meeting, if you left the meeting, it's, it is grounds for dismissal. Made it very clear. So I know that eventually you are, as a believer, going to suffer, even in a country as free as ours. Now, China, all of the Soviet Union and Russia and Poland and Yugoslavia and all those countries um, behind the Iron Curtain for almost 100 years were extremely persecuted for their faith, uh, raped and murdered, and, and uh, I still have several books, incredible books, um, of how mistreated they were. They just had last year, if you remember right, they just found uh, uh, new documents showing all of the Christians that suffered in Russia. And they thought it was a few thousand, and they, they found documents of hundreds of thousands of Christians that were put to death behind the Iron Curtain. You guys remember that in the newspaper just about a year and a half ago? And people were shocked. And the Catholic Church came out with a big statement how shocked they were. They had no idea it was that extreme. Sudan right now, it's unbelievable. Ethiopia, Ethiopia, uh, or excuse me, uh, Egypt right now, it's incredible. Um, try to be a Christian in Iran or any of the eastern countries, uh, the eastern part of the world. We are in a very unique spot of ground in that we are not severely persecuted for the faith. But even in Europe today, they just see you as just there's something wrong. And they can't, and in our country today, if you're, if you're a Christian, you're not going to be a team player. That's the bottom line. There's something wrong with you. Your Judeo-Christian ethic is going to keep you from being unified with the other ten people here. And, and you're always going to be outsider. So why even try to advance you? The sooner I can get you out the door, the better. That's the bottom line. And it's happening today. If you stand up for your faith, if you have a... Christian sticker on your car, or you have an emblem on your shirt, or you put a Bible verse on your desk, I guarantee you, you will not be advanced as if you were politically correct in your mentality in the world. The Bible makes it clear that we who are going to live a godly life, we're going to live for Christ, we are going to suffer. Now, like I say in our country, it's not necessarily going to be outward that severely right now. But if you look, really the sufferings of Christ are inward as much as outward. In other words, half of it is the world is going to deny me because I'm following Christ. You go to China today, China will deny you. You will not go to school. You will not go to college. You will not get a decent job, if any at all. Because you're a Christian, the world's going to deny you. Sudan right now, they'll deny you to live if you're a Christian. They will kill you there. Millions of Christians in Sudan have been killed even in the last five years in Sudan. Hundreds of thousands this last year have been killed. A pastor in Egypt just this last year, his oldest daughter was uh, mugged by some Muslims and uh, raped by one guy over and over again, forced to be made his wife disappeared from the family for over a year. She came back, and she's like, Dad, help me. This is a Christian pastor in Egypt. 
Dad, help me, you know? And what, do we, what does he do? He, he goes down to the police department. She's beaten. She's bruised. And they look on file. Man's wife, you have no rights over her as a dad anymore. They call up the husband who forcibly raped her and married her. And they, he took her away. And they haven't seen her since. That happened this last year in Egypt. That's what's going on in the world around us. And as pastor, he can do nothing. Um, of course, you can imagine what's going on with, with him. And so, but the other half is inward, our choices. And to live a holy and a godly life before God. Now, as we saw there, Paul was outwardly being suffering for Christ, but also there's the inward. Turn over, if you would, to Titus. And then we're going to look over at Second Peter. The grace of God in verse 11, Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For it is the grace of God that, so in the Greek it would be like our semicolons there. It's the grace of God that, semicolon, number one, brings salvation to appear to all men, semicolon number two, teaches us. Teaches us, number one. The grace of God teaches us, number one, to deny ungodliness, their sufferings, folks. Number two, to deny worldly lust, that's suffering. Number three, that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Number four, the grace of God teaches us that we're to look forward to the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our Lord, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people. Listen to this. Zealous for good works. If you are zealous for good works, you will be suffering in this age. Speak these things, exhort, rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. For you to get into the word every day, I, I got a feeling you're fighting about 10 demons. But more than that, you're going to have to beat your body into subjection. Because all of the worldly desires that are there have to be put aside. You got to knock them down one at a time. The TV, the radio, the newspaper, the Reader's Digest, the telephone, the conversation, you know, bang, 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 bang. Okay, the word. I made it. You know, you're, you're, you're bleeding, I guarantee it. Either that or because of all those distractions, you deny yourself sleep. You get up earlier. And through the day you're suffering because you're a bit tired now and then because you chose to be asleep. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians 11. He's, one of the sufferings he has was sleeplessness. He had, a, not a, he had a lack of sleep because he was serving the Lord. He saw that as one of his sufferings of Christ. He also saw fastings as one of his sufferings of Christ in 2 Corinthians. By the way, 2 Corinthians 11 is a list of his sufferings. 2 Corinthians 12 is where he goes into heaven. So Paul really did consider the sufferings of this life compared to the glories to come. Literally, he saw them both. And he says, I've, seen, I've been there, I've seen them, let me tell you. It, it, there's, no, there's no consideration. The glory to come is far, far better. Now, turn over, if you would, to 2 Peter. 
there in chapter 2, verse 18. Now these are the people that say they understand the grace of God and even teachers teaching the grace of God. But really, the whole concept of suffering is out of their thought processes. And notice in verse 18, 2 Peter 2, 18. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through licentiousness, giving themselves a license. It's okay for me, not for everybody else, but for me. I'm a mature Christian. It doesn't bother me. The ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty or grace, 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 man, we have freedom in Christ, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he brought into bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollution of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they again entangled them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a salary having washed to her wallowing in the mire. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle in both of which way to stir you up your pure minds by way of simple reminder. Pure minds, notice that that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and the commandments of us, apostles of our Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, working according to their own lust, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth stands out of the water, and in the water by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth which now exist are kept in store by the same word, reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of the ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come, as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works which are in it will uh, be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for the hastening and the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt away with a fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So what's the conclusion in verse 11? Therefore, what? Realizing that all of this is going to happen. That one day, heaven and earth is going to pass away. We're going to be standing before God. So realizing all of this now, that there's people who teach liberty, they end up back in worldliness. Not just not suffering for Christ, which they ought to be living a sacrificial life unto God, suffering for him. But even more than that, they're living a worldly life. Now, as we take off in Romans 8 here, you're going to see this. That starting in Romans 8, 17, he says, So if, sanctification... To the degree you're willing to work with the Holy Spirit, He is willing to work with you. If you are willing to read the Word of God, God is willing to speak to you. If you say, well, Brian, you've got to understand, i got a very busy schedule. And I'm, I work 12 hours a day, and all I can do is get into one verse a day. Okay, great. Praise God. God's going to teach you one verse a day. 
Now, I say to you, that's slow growing. (laughs) But hey, to the degree you are willing to suffer, to the degree you're willing to lay down your life, and I do think God puts us in circumstances that we have to grow out of his love. He'll cause cataclysmic events in your marriage, horrible situations with your kids, worrisome situations at work, and you will find yourself not getting sleep. So you can stay up and watch The Late Show, or you can spend a couple hours in the Word and prayer. Oh man, I don't know what happened with my marriage. I don't know what went wrong. Here, I was living my life this way, and and my wife left me. Did you say anything? If you're willing to change your ways, I'm willing to talk. Well, I wonder if changing your ways has anything to do with living as Christ would have you to live. I'm about 100% sure it does. And God is allowing this cataclysmic thing to happen in your marriage, so you have to change how you live, which is really lining up more with Christ. And so now as you're struggling with your marriage and you're struggling over all these hardships, trying to get things together, you find yourself on your knees crying out to God, help my marriage and help. And in the meantime, the bottom line is, is six months later when the cataclysmic time is over, you are living a sacrificial sacrificial life suffering for the Lord. And I say, stay there. Man, last six months I've been... I've been praying two hours a day, and I, I went to every prayer meeting at church, and, and uh, do you know they had a 24-hour prayer meeting, a prayer watch at church? I'm on it now, and man, I, and uh, I, I put me at the top of my list, and uh, I've been praying, you know, and man, I've grown so much, and I, you know, I went to a Bible study Thursday and Friday nights, and, and, you know, I just stopped this, and I stopped that, but boy, man, my wife's back, and boy, things are better now, and don't change. Can't you see? You said, God, I can't suffer. And God says, there'll be no glory to come if you don't. You've got to suffer for my sake. You've got to deny yourself of all worldliness. You've got to live soberly, righteously, with a zeal for good works. Living that life dedicated to surrender and service of God. As Paul says, losing my life in this world. Death is working in me that life would be in you, to come to that same place that death is working in you. Not my will, not my wants, not my desires, not pleasures. The Bible says the last days men would be brothers of pleasures of the world rather than lovers of God. No, I'm not going to look. Why? Once we're standing on the other side looking back, how many saints are going to be in heaven with regret? The Bible clearly says there will be believers standing before him in shame. They're going to be in heaven for all of eternity in robes of righteousness, but their immediate experience with God is going to be one of shame. It tells us that in 1 John, it tells us that in Jude, and we have examples all the way through the Bible. Now, I don't know about all the rest of the churches in the world, (laughs) but I know here that as a pastor, it says in Hebrews 13, I'm going to have to give an account for how I've led this body. And I'm telling you, if you are willing to suffer with Christ, you can be not just heirs. We're all heirs. Children, you're a technot, you're a little child of God. Does your spirit bear witness that he's your daddy, daddy, and you sit on his lap and pull on his beard, make a face, face, face uh, 
fish with his, his lips and just, you love the Lord and you just, he's your dad, then great. You are going to be heirs with Christ. But are you going to be a joint heir? Joint heirs are those who are willing to suffer to the same degree. One on your right, one on your left. Are you willing to drink of the same cup? I don't know if you're going to need to, but are you willing? I would encourage you to go and read 2 Corinthians 11 and say, Lord, am I willing? Search my heart and show me now how I can suffer. Where are you calling the Christians in America to suffer for your name's sake? You can just go right down the list. In service, Christ suffered serving. In being the servant. Not just serving, but truly being the servant. Christ left heaven and came to earth, taking that lower position. Are you willing to take that lower position? To deny yourself, to be the servant, and to serve. You never know if you're a servant until somebody treats you like one. How do you feel? <laughs> Did it bother you? Hey, what do you think? What are you telling me to do this for? You know, you do it yourself. You know, if that's going on, then you're not a servant. But if they say, "Hey, go and do this, this, and this," and you go, "Okay," then you're a servant. Time, energy, priorities, all of these things, what you're putting first in your life makes a difference. Now, it's a little hard to put arms and legs on this, but in the Old Testament, every doctrinal truth has an Old Testament picture. So let's close tonight looking at that Old Testament picture over in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Now, Saul was chasing David, as you remember. And when David could have killed Saul, and he didn't, Saul says to David, Now I know truly you are a great man, and God's going to cause you to do great things. I love that. David submitted unto God. And he says, I know. Because you're submitted to God, you are a great man, and you are going to do great things. And I truly know now that you are going to be king when I'm gone. But I ask you, David, please be kind to my relatives after me. Jonathan, the same thing. David, please have mercy upon my children. David now is king in Jerusalem over all the house of Israel. And as his first act as ruling king, not just over Hebron, but over all of Israel, David said in chapter 9, Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul? that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Now, normally, a fleshly king would say, is there anybody that could take over king after Saul? I'm going to wipe out the whole group of them because I don't want anybody possibly to try to take my kids out later, so I'm going to wipe them out. But he says, I want to show kindness to him. And there was the servant of the house of Saul, whose name was Ziba. So when they had called him to David, the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, at your service. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. Now, if you go back over to chapter 4, verse 4, don't go there, but when his nurse at five years old, Mephibosheth was five years old, she heard Saul and Jonathan die, Jonathan's son. She picks him up and just starts running. Ah! Why? I don't know. And she falls on him. She was one big maid. 
totally destroyed his feet. Just crushed his feet to powder, from whatever we understand. He could never walk on it again. And he's five years old. We don't know. He's lame. And there in verse 4, So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is in the house of Myrrh, in the son of the mill. Notice where he's at. In Lodabar, which means no, low is no, and Debar is pasture. No pasture, no fold, or no, literally, it would be no place. He's nowhere. And there the king sent and brought him out of the house of Micar, the son of Mil, from no place, nowhere. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, oh, Mephibosheth, by the way, means, it's two compound words, it means in the corner, in shame. He's like in the corner in shame is where he was at. The son of Saul had come to David. He fell on his face and prostrated himself. Then David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, here's your servant. So David said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake. So because of the son, because of the father, I'm going to bless you, just like we are as Christians. And will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Then he bowed himself and said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? And the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and to all his house. You therefore, your sons and your servants, shall work the land for him. You shall bring in the harvest, and your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king has commanded his servants, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, He shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had was a young, had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. What do we learn here? First of all, we see that type because of the father, because of what the son relationship. I have a relationship with the son. You're going to be blessed. What did Mephibosheth have to offer? Nothing. What could he do for the king? Nothing. He was lame in both of his feet. He could not help. He could not serve. There's nothing he could do. What was he supposed to do? Enjoy the king and be in his presence and respond with the right response. Now, the story doesn't end here. As time goes on, David's son Absalom decides to try to take over the kingdom and kill his own father. And so all the people had to flee with David, whoever was going to go with David. And notice, for example, over in chapter 15, verse 20, there was one guy in verse 19, actually, chapter 15, verse 19, and the king said to Itti, the Gittite, why are you also going with us? Return and remain with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your own place. In fact, you came only yesterday. Now they're all fleeing out of Jerusalem, and he's saying, go back to the king, small king, in other words, Absalom's son. In fact, in fact, you only showed up yesterday to be a part of our kingdom. 
Should I make you wander up and down with us today since I go and I know not where I go? Return and take your brother and back. Mercy and truth be with you. So I won't take it personally. You don't know me that well. Why are you suffering with me? You just met me yesterday. So here's a foreigner coming to live in Jerusalem. He met David the day before. And he's saying, you don't need to be suffering with me. You don't need to go out into the country. And I don't even know where I'm going. I'm just going out to hide out in the desert. And that's where they went out into the desert. So just go back. I won't take it personally. And if I can come back into the kingdom and you stayed there, I won't take it personally because you weren't there long enough to know really the whole political situation, what's going on. But Ittai answered the king and said, As the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives, surely in whatever place my Lord the king shall be, whether in death or life, even there also your servant shall be. Radical. So the guy says, I've come here because I want to be with you, David. And wherever you're going, that's where I'm going. Life or death, I'm with you. Suffering, not suffering. It doesn't matter, I'm with you. But notice over in chapter 16, the king now is wondering about Mephibosheth. And the king said in verse 3, where is your master's son? He's talking to Ziba. And Ziba said to the king, indeed, he is staying in Jerusalem, for he said, today, the house of Israel restored the kingdom of my father to me. So the king said to Ziba, here all that belongs to Mephibosheth is yours. And Ziba said, I humbly bow before you that I may find favor in your sight, my lord, O king. So Mephibosheth is lame in both his feet, but David expected him to travel with him into the desert and stand by him, even though it was a difficult thing for him to do, having been lame in both feet, and they didn't know where they were going. They were going to have to wander away from the comfort of the palace and go out into the desert. But as far as the king was concerned, as far as David was concerned, Mephibosheth should have made that trip with him. And he didn't. Chapter 19. In verse 24. Now Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king, and he had not cared for his feet, nor trimmed his mustache, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in peace. So it was when he had come to Jerusalem to meet the king that the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me, referring to Ziba. For your servant said, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go to the king because your servant is lame. And he had slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God. Therefore do what is good in your eyes. So he's saying, Ziba set me up. Ziba said, I'm going to go get a donkey ready for you. And then he just took off. The king didn't buy this story. And there in verse 29, so the king said to him, Why do you speak any more of your matters? Talking to Mephibosheth, I think he's angry. I have said, you and Ziba divide the land. So he's saying, whatever the land that was yours, I've given it to Ziba, and uh, whatever he's willing to give you back, it's up to him. You deal with him from now on. There was a clear loss of reward. Because of the king, Mephibosheth said to the king, rather let him take it all, inasmuch as my lord the king has come back to peace. Mephibosheth did continue to eat at the king's table, but he had lost his reward. All that was Saul's and Jonathan's before him, all was lost and given to another. Again, the same mentality we find with Jesus in the reward chapters of Matthew 25 
rewards taken away, rewards given to others. The virgins that came, much is given. He says, whoever has much, much more will be given unto him. He who has little, what little he has will be taken away. Well, turning back over to Romans, we'll end tonight. So in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, if you are, have faith in Christ, your justification is a gift. You cannot earn it. Sanctification, however, as we continue on in chapters 8, we're going to see that God's going to be there for you no matter how much you mess up. God's going to remain faithful. But in chapters 9, 10, and 11, we're going to learn about Israel and how they did not walk by faith, how they were unwilling to follow the Messiah, and how they lost everything. And then in chapter 12, he's going to come back and he's going to say, Therefore, he's going to make it clear that our reasonable, logical response to God is to give our lives as a living, holy sacrifice unto God. That is our reasonable service of worship, is giving our life and sacrifice to him. And then in chapter 12 forward, he's going to elaborate on that very fact. And so right now, he's, going to, he's tiptoeing into it. He's saying we're no longer, remember, debtors to the flesh. We're debtors to God's Spirit. If God's Spirit's in you, you're being led by the Spirit. And now he's saying if you're being led by the Spirit, you will be led as Jesus was led who suffered. You also will be suffering. And if you are willing to walk with Christ and suffer with Christ and live the denying life, and in verse 18, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. What a glorious day that's going to be when we truly see who we are. Right now we sort of see little bits and pieces, don't we? You hang out with somebody and you see some flesh for a while and you're going, I don't know if I want to be around this guy anymore. And then you see him in Christ. You see what's going on inside him. You see that spirit. You see his heart for God. You see that kindness and that love and that sweetness of God's spirit who's in him. And you're going, wow, this guy is so neat. Then you see a little more flesh and you're like, oh man. (laughs) You know. Then you see that spirit and you're just going, wow. This guy's incredible. Well, one day, we're not going to be looking at these outward bodies anymore. We're going to be inside a body that sees the spirit that's righteous as Jesus is righteous, pure as Jesus is pure. And through that righteousness of Christ, we're going to see not Jesus. We're going to see you. It's Jesus' righteousness. It's his holiness. It's his purity that is now you because he lives in you and you are in him but we're going to see you as you are perfected in Christ. And boy, what a beautiful scene that's going to be. Can't you just imagine seeing everybody in their perfected state? How kind and loving and gentle and pure and holy and all of those great desires able to be fulfilled in those new bodies. What a glorious day that's going to be to see that unveiling of all believers. And imagine all of us being together Our unique personalities, us, that uniqueness about us is still going to be there. But we're going to have perfect bodies with Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, come tonight, Lord, and we, like Mephibosheth, are just lame in our feet. And all we know to do is sit at your table. 
and eat from your table. And this is, we're so grateful as we see your grace and we see the mercy and we see how you've given it all to us as a gift. And this we are greatly rejoice. And we know that we will always sit at the table with you. But we also know, Lord, there's those times where you're clearly calling us out of the world, of our comfort zone, to deny ourselves, take up a cross, and follow you. And Lord, I know it's in my heart to want to be on your right or to be on your left, not as the somebody great in your kingdom, but just somebody who has great rewards to give you glory. I would love to have a crown to throw at that glassy sea to sing, Thou alone art worthy. And Lord, I know many, as we read on in Revelation, all they're going to have is a white robe of righteousness, and they're singed from the fire of the world. They're singed because of the worldliness. And Lord, I pray that that wouldn't be anybody here, that you would perfect in us your church, a special people zealous for good works, purified. Right now, those vessels clean and pure, satisfied for our master's use. Lord, help us now to truly take this before you tonight and tomorrow as we meditate on this. What's it mean, Lord? Where are you calling me to suffer that I'm still living in the world? Where are you calling me to deny myself when I'm just feeding my flesh? Lord, I I know I'm in the world and you've given us great things in the world. You said all things are here to enjoy. But Lord, if I cross the line where I'm in America, I'm able to live this kind of lifestyle and get away with it because I'm in a land that... It's free, and I'm in a country that's financially lucrative, and I've got comfort with cars and houses, and I've got comfort with what money can buy, and it's really not the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Lord, are we to to deny ourselves in areas that we're not denying ourselves now by witnessing, by praying and fasting, by seeking you in your word, by memorizing scriptures, by being a more of a zealous for good works to encourage the body. Are we too self-centered, Lord? Are we thinking about ourselves and our comfort zones and not really thinking about others? Please help us to have that same mind that was in you, to be humble as a servant, even to the point of death. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all.